0: Let's pray. Lord, we want that song that we just sang to flow here into our time in your word. Lord, take our ears, let them listen. Take our attention, let it be yours. Take our faith, let it be invested fully in you and what you've spoken Take our obedience and let it be offered to you without reservation. And Lord, through your word, exercise your loving authority in our lives. And Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, this would be a supernatural encounter. Not humans listening to another human, but your children hearing your word. And I pray that the fruit of this time, O God, would be lives that more fully, more clearly show your glory, your character, your power. God, please be with us now. Please help us. And we know that you love your children, and we expect you to answer this prayer. We praise you, O God, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. Stan was a normal man, living a normal life, going about his business. One day he got a letter in the mail with a a stamp on it from a country that he'd never heard of before, and he opened up the letter and found out that he had been adopted as a child, and that his birth father, who he'd never met, was actually royalty in a small kingdom on the other side of the world, and Stan was heir to a significant amount of money. Stan was overjoyed, even though he wouldn't inherit this money for some time. His future was bright, and for weeks he lay awake at night, dreaming about all the wonderful things that he was going to get to do someday. And for a few weeks, that was it, until one day he got a knock at the door and opened the door to reveal a stranger who he had never seen before, yet who also looked oddly familiar. It was his father. Not content to simply hear about Stanley from afar, Stan's dad had flown across the world to stay with him for an unspecified period of time. Suddenly, Stan's life changed again. This inheritance wasn't just a far-off idea. It was attached to a person, a person who is now living in his house, a very particular person who wasn't very happy with all of Stan's lifestyle choices. You are royalty now, son, he would say. You can't eat that food. You you can't play those games so late at night. He made Stan sit up straight at the table and use the right forks and eat certain food and make all kinds of choices that began to have an effect on on every part of, of Stan's life. Sometimes Stan would lay awake at night and think back to how he lived Before that moment, he opened that letter. His life was simpler back then. It was certainly more comfortable back then. He had no plans. He didn't think much about the future, but at least he could do whatever he wanted. Now, every part of his life was being taken over by this royal house guest who really cramped his style. And yet, and yet, Stanley knew that if he had a chance, he wouldn't go back. He'd open the letter because for the first time in his life, he had a future. He had an identity. He had so much more to live for than his own pleasure. That letter had changed everything. And he knew that he wouldn't want it any other way. That story I just told you, some of you will recognize, is a, a pretty poorly told parable about what we've been seeing here in First Peter over the past few weeks. From verse 3 to 12 in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter bombarded us with a barrage of truth about what God has done for us and and is going to do for us in the future. And that that truth was wonderful. I mean, how how could it not be wonderful to be reminded of the bright future that God has planned for us? I mean, it, it sure beats the alternative, right? It beats worrying about hell, to have such a a bright future promised to us. But last week, we got the knock at the door and found out that this truth wasn't just staying off in the future. The truth stood there on our front porch with bags in hand and announced that it was moving in. And by the way, it planned to change everything. And by the way, we had to set an alarm because it was taking us to the gym at 6 a.m. Verse 13, Therefore, in light of all this truth, therefore, preparing your minds for action, that's where I'm getting the gym thing from, right? And being sober-minded, set your hope partially? No, fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is unsettling. This is radical even. That's that's a word that some of us used this week as we were talking about last week's passage and last week's message. I mean, it's one thing to have some ideas floating off in the future about a a, a happily ever after. But it's quite another thing to be told that right now we must shape our entire lives around that hope such that every corner of our lives down to what we watch on TV is affected by it. It can be unnerving to recognize that Jesus Christ is Lord of our remote control too. This might seem challenging to us, but but here's the thing. Once we've seen it, there's no way back. The, the only way is forward, because these aren't just ideas. The living Lord Jesus Christ, resurrected and alive, has laid a claim on the lives of his people. And if we have been born again through the mercy of God, then though our flesh is, is, is going to struggle with this, we're going to find in ourselves a willingness, a desire to listen and obey what the Lord in His Word is calling us to do. Just like Stanley in that made up story, we really won't want it any other way. And we're going to see that very clearly in our passage today, looking at verses 14 to 16, as we open up in verse 14 with these words as obedient children. These words bring us all the way back to verse 3. Where we celebrated that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, caused us to be born again. When we studied that verse a few weeks ago, and if you weren't here, it's there on our our website and you can listen to it. We considered that God has become our Father. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if, if you have been saved, God has become your father in a unique and a special way by, by spiritually begetting you through the resurrection of Jesus. Now today's, question, today's passage, these words here answer the question, so we were born again. What were we born again as? When you were born again, what were you born again as? And the answer is you were born again as obedient children. This is quite a a contrast to who we were the first time. The first time we were born, we were born as disobedient children. Sorry, new parents, if you haven't figured that out yet, that's what you got. That's who we all are. That's who we all were, at least, That's our nature, our leaning. Uh, In the book of, of Ephesians, twice, the Apostle Paul describes unbelievers as sons of disobedience. Sons of disobedience. That's in Ephesians 2, 2 and 5, 6. That's who we were. That's our old identity. We hated obeying. We didn't like being told what to do. We wanted our own way instead of anybody else's way. And certainly instead of God's way. But now God has caused us to be born again. And what have we been born again as? We've been born again as obedient children. Notice the wording here. Peter does not say, be obedient children. Most English translations get this right, following the original language here, which says, as obedient children. In other words, if you've been born again, this is your identity. This is who you are. You're an obedient child of God. This is is your new nature. That God has caused to be created in you. The new nature put in us through the Holy Spirit, we are obedient children who have a a nature, a a disposition you could say, a leaning, an inclination that wants to obey our Father. This was the great promise of the new covenant given through Ezekiel that God would put his spirit in us and cause us to be careful to obey his rules. You can see that in Ezekiel 36, 27. This is why 1 John, when it talks about being born of God, it says, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. 1 John 2, 29. This is because God's children look like their father. When we were born the first time, we, we look like our, our, our dads. Many of you know, I, a few about four, five, six years ago, I reconnected with my dad after 20 years. And it was, it was the most fascinating thing to talk to someone who I hadn't talked to since I was 12 and recognize how not only did I look physically like him, but had so many of the same interests and we go, do you and just not do yeah, do you like that too? Yeah, it was it was fascinating. We and and in a much deeper and a richer way, when God causes his children to be born again, we look like our dad. We're born again as obedient children. We've talked before, just with this word obedience, so we're not going to drag it out, but we've talked about how, as modern Christians, sometimes we get kind of uh, uncomfortable with this language of obedience. It makes us a little, you know, tight under the collar. But once again, this passage is, is asking us to lay that aside and understand that obedience is a wonderful, joyful, central part of what it means to be a Christian Peter addresses his readers as obedient children. If we're Christians, that's, that's our identity. Now, at the same time, so we got we to say this almost before we've even finished saying the other thing. Peter understands that being obedient children does not mean that obedience is impossible. Sorry, that disobedience is impossible. That's what I meant to say. Peter understands that though we've been given a new nature, it is possible for us to live in alignment with our old nature. So that's why in verse 14, he gives this command. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Do not be conformed. This word conformed has the sense of of giving something a shape, You can even think of like pushing something into a mold. It's like what we do with dough or Play-Doh or things like that. So so here's the idea here. We've been born again as obedient children, but obedient children aren't like stone statues. We're, We're flexible. We can be shaped. We can be shaped in the wrong ways. And so Peter says, don't be shaped According to what? The passions of your former ignorance. So former ignorance. So this is who you were before when you were ignorant, didn't know God. By the way, this is one of the big clues that these are Gentiles that he's writing to. Because he wouldn't have said this to Jews. Because before, even though they didn't know Christ, they did know about God. They, they, They knew a lot. But these are Gentiles. They didn't know God. And they were ignorant And as we see elsewhere in the Bible, ignorance of God, so not knowing God with our minds, shows up in a life that's given over to sinful desires. Right, 1 Thessalonians 4.5 talks about the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. It's exactly what Peter's talking about here. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. That word passion can be translated lust- Desire, craving, coveting. It's translated a few of those different ways. It all comes from this one word that talks about our cravings, our desires, wants. See, according to Peter and according to the whole Bible, this is the basic problem at the root of of sin is our desires. It's not actually what we do. That flows out of what we want. And it's what we want. That's the problem. We want the wrong things or we want the right things now in my way. And before we knew God, we were driven along by all kinds of cravings, cravings for money, cravings for respect and status, cravings for comfort, cravings. Yes, for physical pleasure. And before we knew God, these lusts were our, like our slave drivers we were enchained to them. After we've come to know God, these lusts are no longer our slave masters. We've been set free. But here's the thing. Our lusts do their best to make us forget that. Right? If someone's been set free from slavery, one of the things you, that the slave master would try and do is make them forget that. So our old sinful cravings, So here's what we have to understand. Being born again, our old sinful cravings are no longer our master, but they're still hanging around, trying to lure us back into their company, trying to push us into their mold. And so Peter says, don't let that happen. As obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions or the cravings of your former ignorance. In other words, don't be who you used to be. Be who you are. Be who you are, not who you were. Resist the pull of your previous life. Don't let your old passions push you into their mold. Don't let your life be shaped by the cravings of those who don't know God. So as obedient children... We must resist the pull of our previous life. Don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But that's not where Peter stops. Peter wants us to do more than just avoid sin. That's important. There are some people who that's their whole vision of the Christian life. Don't do bad stuff. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do this. Don't do that. And as long as you don't do that bad stuff, thumbs up. That, that's not Peter's vision for the Christian life. That's not God's vision for the Christian life. Instead of being enslaved uh, to being pushed into the mold of our previous sins, our previous passions, Peter has a a positive command for us, which is that we would be holy. Verse 15, you also be holy. Holy. That's the main instruction in these verses, right? Instead of this, instead of the previous cravings and lusts, here's here's who you're to be as obedient children. You also be holy. God's obedient children are to be holy. What does it mean to be holy? What comes to your mind when you hear This, When you think, if you were to think, holy person, what comes to mind? I wonder if some of us imagine a person who dresses strange, has an unnatural affection for long prayers, and they don't know how to have any fun. Or maybe a holy person is someone who is so afraid of sinning that they're just really hard to spend time with. So, sometimes, more seriously, people define holy as being pure, good, sinless. I wonder if that, that, I think that's common. We think holy, we just think sinless, no no sin. I mean, that comes out in our phrase "holier than thou." Well, they're holier than thou. They're better than me, right? So it's a sinless thing. Sometimes I've heard uh, more theological type people say holiness means like totally other. So it's, it's like talks about how God is like completely different than us. Commonly, we'll hear the word holiness as, as meaning set apart. Set apart from common things. Now, th- we've talked about this before here, so we won't, we won't rehash it all, but but when we actually look at how the word is used in the Bible, and not just the Bible, but also the, the, the ancient religions that, of the world of the Bible, the basic idea of the word holy has to do with being devoted to God. That's the basic idea. And if you want to know more about this, I can point you back to some messages where we talked about this before. Throughout the Bible, we see places or people or even objects like bread that become holy when they're devoted to God. Like think of in the temple, there's the holy bread. That's what made it holy was that it was set, set aside, devoted to God's purposes. And the word holy includes the idea of being set apart, but the focus isn't on what it's set apart from. See, that's, that's I think, part of the, some of the mistake we make here. We think holiness means being set apart, so the focus is on what you don't do. But, but if the a focus of holiness in the Bible is being devoted to God, then, the, then it includes the idea of being set apart, but the focus is on what you've been set apart for devoted to God. Holiness is complete devotion to the Lord. So a few years ago, we talked about the idea of, of a game ball at a rider's game, right? You've got all kinds of footballs, but when, when, it, when a football becomes a game ball, it gets devoted to the purpose of being used in that game. And so yes, it's no longer a common ball. I couldn't just walk up and ask to play with it. You don't, you don't, no one gets to touch it. It's, it's, it's set aside But not just set aside, it's set aside for, it's devoted to this really special purpose of being used in in a football game. And that's why in in 2 Timothy 2.21, Paul connects holiness with the idea of being useful to the master of the house, quote, ready for every good work. That's what holiness is. It's not just not doing bad stuff. It's being completely available to God. Just that song we sang right before the message, take, take my life, take my, take my hands, take my feet, take my lips, take my money. Take everything. That's, that's holiness. Everything that we are devoted to God. So holiness includes the idea of not sinning because if you're devoted to God, you can't be enjoying the things that God hates at the same time, but, but it means so much more than that. And, and, and please listen, holiness certainly doesn't mean not enjoying life. Just think about it. If holiness is being devoted to God, we're being devoted to the God who made this world and filled it with wonderful things for us to enjoy. So you can be holy and enjoy a really good steak. Sorry if you're a vegetarian. We can talk about that later. But y- you can be holy and enjoy the wonderful things God's given us to enjoy. In fact, that that is actually being holy is we're devoted to God. We now understand all these things as being his gifts. To be holy is to be fully human. If God made us for himself, then to be devoted to him is to be the fullest and the best. That God made us to be actively given over to the one who made us useful to him, ready to be used by him. And so that's Peter's main point in this passage. Instead of being seduced by sinful passions, we are to be given over to the one who made us and the one who saved us. Totally devoted to God, and Peter wants us to, to understand us a little bit more. So he gives us four supporting ideas that come out in, in three phrases in these verses here that that fill out this instruction to be holy. They tell us why and what and, and so on. And so we're gonna we're gonna look, and you can see there on, on your outline, we got four supporting ideas. And the first is this: we're to be holy because. God is holy. right there in verse 15. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy. Now that word as is doing double duty. In, just like in, in English, in the original language, it's talking about God as the standard of holiness, but also God as the, the, the reason for holiness. Because God is holy, here's the sense, because God is holy, we must be holy so the assumption here is that, is that we're God's children and we need to look like our dad. As God's obedient children, we're going to have a family resemblance. We must be holy because our father is holy. Second, like we've just touched on, we need to be holy like he is holy. Which again comes from this word as, it's doing double duty. As God is holy, we are to be holy. How holy is God? God. Holy, holy, holy. Now you might wonder here, if if being holy means being devoted to God, then what does it mean for God to be holy? Well, that's just exactly it. Scripture reveals a God who is completely devoted to his purposes, his plans, his people. God is full of steadfast love and faithfulness. Time and time again, God saves his people because he is holy. He is devoted to the glory of his name. Listen to this from Ezekiel 36, 22 to 23. This is God's holiness. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations, to which you came and I will vindicate the holiness of my great name which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them and the nations will know that I am Yahweh declares the Lord God when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes see God's people Israel were scattered in exile and were living like the pagans and that made the nation's question is God holy is God devoted To keeping his promises? Is God devoted to his people? And God says, I will prove that I am holy when I save you and rescue you and keep my promises. See, this is why it was such a comfort. We looked at this a couple years ago when, when Isaiah, in the year that King Uzziah died, in a time of, of such a crisis in the nation, such instability in the nation, and he gets a vision of a God who is holy, 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 completely devoted to keeping his covenant promises to his people, completely devoted to the glory of his name. That's God. God. And we are called to be holy as he is holy. We are called to be as devoted to God as God is devoted to God. Thirdly, we're told to be holy in everything we do. Verse 15, you are also, sorry, you also be holy in all your conduct. Now that that kind of goes without saying, right? If we're to be as holy as God, God has no secrets, no shadows, no bad habits that he hides from. He's perfectly holy. And so if we're to be holy like him, then, then that's us. But Peter makes it really clear, in all of your conduct. This would have been quite an idea for the, the first readers of Peter's letter. See, the, the idea of holiness was common in the ancient world. With the, with the pagan religions, the, the Roman gods, the, these different gods they worshipped, there would be certain days, certain meals, certain places that would have been holy, devoted to that god. But the rest of the, 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 the week, they, they got to kind of do whatever they wanted. Being devoted to God doesn't just mean that we set aside some parts of our life for religious purposes. It'd be easy here thinking about French Quebec, as we talked about this morning. It'd be easy here to to, to criticize some church traditions where you know you go to a confessional once in a while and you're good, but. We'd be fooling ourselves if we didn't think that as evangelicals, we have the same temptation. Give God Sunday morning, maybe if we're really spiritual, 10% of our money, and then, then the rest of our life is up to us. See, being holy means that we're devoted to God in all of our conduct. We belong to him completely. We're full-time Christians, every one of us. Faithful to the Lord, even when everybody around us is celebrating sin. No corner of our lives off-limits to him. So that means, it means a lot more than just avoiding sin. It means every hour of every day belongs to God. Our jobs belong to God. Our free time belongs to God. Our screen time belongs to God. Our hobbies belong to God. Our money belongs to God. Our relationships belong to God. Our life plans belong to God. It's all holy, all devoted to him. And so we see here, holiness is not one priority among many. Holiness defines our life. Everything we do, completely devoted to God, his plans, his purposes, his priorities. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Finally, for Peter tells us we must be holy because this is what the scriptures say. Since it is written, verse 16 You shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, most likely here, Peter's quoting Leviticus 19.2, where where the Lord said, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. That's kind of interesting, because Leviticus goes on to talk about living out holiness by offering animal sacrifices at the temple, uh, leaving some grain around the corners of your field for the poor. And we might wonder, well, what's what's that have to do with us? I mean, is Peter telling us here that we need to be living out holiness the way that Israel did in the Old Covenant? And and we know that's not true. And, And one of the ways we know that's not true is we go back to verse 10. Peter told us that the Old Testament scriptures were about Jesus. Moses, when he gave the law, was prophesying about the grace that was to be ours Right? The Old Testament law in Leviticus is pointing towards Christ, is fulfilled in Christ. What Peter is showing us is that that doesn't mean that God doesn't care about his people's holiness. God has always wanted his people to be devoted to him, even before the law of Moses. And, and what, we, what, we, what we see here is that the law of Moses was one particular way that God's people lived out holiness At their specific point in the story of redemption. Right? Abraham was to be holy and it looked different for him. Noah was to be holy and it looked different for him in those different covenants. You and I are to be holy like Peter's readers. Our holiness is going to have a different shape than than what it had for Moses and, and the Israelites. Douglas Moo explains Holiness for Peter's readers means they will set themselves apart from the customs and values of their unbelieving society to live by the character and teachings of Jesus, no longer allowing their previous unbelief to define them. That's that's holiness for us. We're setting ourselves apart from the values and the celebrations of our society I don't mean literally all the celebrations. I'm talking about when our society celebrates what's wrong. We, we are setting ourselves aside from that and we're devoting ourselves to God, which practically looks like following the, the teaching of Jesus and the apostles. So Peter quotes from Leviticus not to tell us that we're still under the law of Moses, but rather as an example that God has always cared about his people's holiness And so as we live out the words of Jesus and the apostles in dependence on the spirit, we can read the Old Testament and see God's passion for his people's holiness. And with that, verse 16 concludes. We've walked through these three verses. And we can sum up this this whole passage in a sentence, which is that as obedient children we must resist the pull of our previous life and be holy because our father is holy like he is holy in everything we do as the scriptures say. This is what God through Peter calls us his children to do. And what we want to do here at at the end of, of having walked through this passage we want to step back and, and try and get a, get a lay of the land, try and try and, and, and sum up what we should do with all of this. Kind of gather up our, our reflections on this passage. And, and I want to do that under three headings, real holiness, real humility, and real help. Let's start with real holiness. Here's what I mean. We should understand that Peter intends for us to take him literally And to actually apply ourselves to being holy in all of our life as God is holy. Now that might seem obvious to you. You're like, well, isn't that just what it says? But it's not what everybody has understood as they've taught on a passage like this. See, some readers of the Bible, some teachers of the Bible come to a passage like this and they say, that's impossible. There's no way that you and I can even approach the holiness of God. Therefore, there's no way that Peter actually expects us to be holy. Here's what's going on here. This is what these guys will say. The the point of this passage is just to show us that we can't be holy. And then that makes us depend on Jesus more. And to be thankful that Jesus died for all the times that we can't do this. So in other words, here's here's what they're saying. Peter deliberately gives us an impossible command in order to push us back to the gospel. And and then some authors, uh, some more recent authors uh, that, that I've read have said that this is actually how we become holy. By despairing of our own ability to be good And by just looking to Jesus, just the act of doing that has an effect on our heart that actually slowly changes us and we'll become holy without actually even trying. Now that might sound great and and there may be some echoes of the truth in there. But that is most certainly not what Peter is teaching us. Peter is telling us to be holy and he expects us to understand what he says in a straightforward way. We don't have to be afraid of this and we don't have to try to force the gospel into this passage. The gospel's right here. I mean, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Next week, we're going to hear how we've been ransomed with the precious blood of Christ and that through him, we've become believers in God. This whole passage is just soaked in gospel grace, including the gospel grace of the new birth. See, we, we get confused if we think that the gospel and the grace of the gospel is simply forgiveness. See, the, the, that's not where the gospel stops. The gospel also has the grace of us being born again with new hearts that want to obey God. And so Peter, notice here, Peter's not telling us to be holy in order to receive God's grace. We, we should be afraid if that's, if that's the idea here. And then we'd have to say, what's going on? No, no, we've been told already. We've received God's grace because of his sheer mercy. God does not wait for us to be holy before he loves us. And now that we have been given a new nature, Peter tells us to be holy. He can only tell us to be holy because of the gospel. And now that we've received a new nature, now that we've been born again, with hearts that want to obey God, he tells us, be holy. Still, still, you might wonder, this just seems unrealistic. Like, because what's the standard here? The standard is God. I mean, who can do that? Isn't this a bit of a stretch? And I, and I wonder if, if sometimes we ask that question because we have this idea that if you can't do something perfectly, then you can't do it at all, right? Like, like some people, when they come to these ideas, they seem to think there's two options, either being perfectly sinless or just being okay with sin. And that's just not a biblical idea. The, the, the Bible assumes that holiness can be real even if it's not perfect. Here's an example. Faithfulness in marriage. On my wedding day, I promised my wife to love and to cherish her until death parted us. Have I done that perfectly in the 12 years since then? Careful how you answer, honey. No, I'll tell you. No, I have not perfectly loved and cherished my wife. Does that mean I've been an unfaithful husband? I sure hope not. I think we all understand that a faithful spouse is not a perfect spouse, but rather someone who, when they don't love and cherish, they ask forgiveness, they turn back, when they're tempted to look somewhere else, they turn away from that. And the direction of their heart keep continually turns aside and continues to pursue faithfulness. And that doing that over the long haul, a long obedience in the same direction as, uh, what was his name? Eugene Peterson said, that's faithfulness. It can be real even if it's not perfect. Can you imagine, can you imagine if if you were talking to a a newlywed and he said, yeah, you know, I said some good things there, but like, I'm not actually going to try and keep my marriage vows. I mean, that's just so legalistic. Like... My marriage vows, they just show me how much I'll actually never be able to keep them. And, and that just makes me more aware of how much grace my spouse gives me, you know, an unfaithful person like me. You know, over time, that gratitude, you know, will slowly change my heart and maybe make me a more faithful spouse. But actually trying to be faithful? No, that's that's not the point. Like, we would hear that and we'd be like, you're nuts. But but, but people apply that reasoning to the Bible's teaching on holiness, if you can't be perfectly holy, well, then then you, you can't be holy at all. We might as well just give up, stay stuck in the same place that you were when you first came to Jesus. And some of these people say this in the in the um, in the in the name of being gospel centered, but they're actually missing the power of the gospel to transform rebel sinners into holy people. And they're missing the fact that Peter is expecting his readers, including us, to take this passage in a straightforward way and obey his command to be holy in real life as we follow Jesus together. Real holiness. But right away, number two, we want to move on to our second point, which is real humility. Because which one of us, if I was to say, how many of you are holy as God is holy, would dare to even raise a finger Which one of us can say that we're nailing this? Which one of us can say that we can do this without the Holy Spirit's help? It is appropriate to feel humbled by a passage like this. See, here's the thing. We, we can so often feel pretty good about ourselves when we compare ourselves to other people. And I wonder if, you know, that's another definition of holy, is that the bad stuff that other people do. You know, and we feel like as long as we're not drinking and doing drugs and, you know, breaking into people's cars and stuff, then, then yeah, I guess I'm pretty holy. And in fact, sometimes I wonder if we sort of slowly make ourselves the standard of holiness, And you know, if more people in our church could just be like us, it'd be just a much nicer group of people to hang out with, you know? And I wonder if that's why we get so offended when people correct us or challenge us. You know, Matthew 18, that's for other people, not me. I feel so judged right now that person is so legalistic, thinking they're holier than thou. You know the kinds of mean things that Christians say when other people make them them feel bad? But if we know that God has called us to be as holy as he is holy, then the, the comparisons with other people stop. We shouldn't be surprised. Listen to this. We shouldn't be surprised if other people are actually holier than us. shouldn't take our breath away. Because God is the standard and we're looking to him together, we shouldn't be surprised if our brother comes to us to show us our fault. We should welcome challenge and correction because we'd be crazy to think that we've arrived anywhere. We're learning Christ together and we're going to welcome all the help that we can get. And that brings us to our final stop today, which is real help. We can't be holy on our own. We need the word of God to show us what it means. We need the Holy Spirit in us to help us resist the temptation of our former passions, to joyfully help us obey the teaching of Jesus. And here's the thing, we also need each other. And I'm not just making that up to to read it into the passage. No, it's just right here. This passage was not written to individuals. This passage was written to a community. As obedient children, plural. You also be holy. That you in the original language is plural. And we don't have a plural you in English, which is a problem unless we were to say y'all. Okay, y'all, I almost don't want to say that, finish it because it seems disrespectful, but that, that's what it's saying here. You together be holy. And in the weeks ahead, here's where the, this is one of those sermons that just kind of has to stop because in the weeks ahead, Peter is going to describe for us in more detail what it looks like for us to pursue holiness together. But, but, but here's the thing just, just, just as we sew up here, this is not a solo project. That's why, like the guys who try and be holy by going out by themselves, you know, in in the desert somewhere, that's not how God designed it. God designed holiness to be a community project. And we're going to see that in the weeks ahead. So, in some ways, we just have to stop here and say to be continued. But I I want to encourage you with something to, to take a step with something really practical. This afternoon, or this evening, before your work week begins, I encourage you to take five or 10 minutes along with God. Think over your life, prayerfully think over your life, even even if that's overwhelming, just just your past week. And ask God to help you see of two two or three areas in your life where instead of being devoted to him, you've been being pushed into the mold of your former passions. Then, asking God for his help, think, brainstorm two or three ways that you could begin to take real steps towards holiness in these areas. Did you hear what we're saying here, right? Because this is not one of those messages you want to be like, oh yeah, I'm supposed to be holy and I'm not. Okay, move on. No, let's actually do something with this. Ask for God's help as you brainstorm. What are two or three ways in these areas that I could take real steps towards obeying the words of my Savior here? Because we've received God's grace, we devote that area of our life to God. Finally, here's a crucial step. Go tell another Christian about your first two steps. Confess your sin to another person with flesh and blood and ask them to pray for you and to hold you accountable as you pursue holiness in this area of your life. What might happen in our church if a critical mass of us were to do that? Prayerfully depending on the Holy Spirit together. I can't wait to find out. Oh God, we hear the call to be devoted to you, and we confess our deep need for you. God, I praise you that this is not a requirement for grace. I thank you that this is not a requirement for salvation. But God, we know this is a result of salvation and we can't ignore it. So God, would you help us to take advantage of all of the help that you've given us in your word, in your spirit, and in your church? Would you make us, oh God, a holy people together for your glory. Amen.